0: Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Rev. Joel Smith. remain standing for the reading of god's word as you know it is our joy and delight to preach through whole books of the bible and today we come back to the very end of first peter chapter five for the last and final and concluding sermon of this great epistle the epistle of first peter and so join me in reading just verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting, declaring that this is indeed the true grace of God. Therefore, stand firm in it. Amen. Please be seated. If you are familiar with the law or legal system, then you most likely are familiar with the term briefs. Briefs are written by lawyers, most often to judges, on why their case or motion should be heard or not heard. And a lawyer, worth his weight and salt, will have those arguments be based upon the law. In other words, he will not try to make his arguments based upon emotions or things that he really wants, even though he may really want them. He's not going to argue, I want you to rule this way because I really, really want you to, Your Honor, or because this really helps my case, even though those things may be true. He must make his or her arguments based upon the law, why this has legal legitimacy. And they file these briefs, and I'm guessing they are called such because the judge is not looking for them to file their entire case, or to make their entire arguments, But rather, in brief, give the sum and substance of your legal basis for making this point or argument or case. Why this should be ruled upon a legal precedence. And I guess that judges are thankful for lawyers that can do so efficiently. That can give them the important parts but leave the fluff out of it, so to speak. Likewise, the President of the United States, you may know this, receives daily briefings, either in person or on paper, of things that are of natural, national interest to him. And it's the President's staff that is to give him the things that he should be made aware of and give him enough information so that he can know sufficiently about them. I say all this because as we come to the end here, we see that Peter says that he has written to them briefly. Not everything that could be said has been said, but enough has been said to be made aware of their their situation, sufficient for their stated purpose. And therefore, this book could be viewed as a briefing A briefing of the Christian life, so to speak. And so I thought before we put this book to rest, to move on to another, that we would have one last concluding sermon. And that you would indulge me in such to have a review, to review some of the highlights Some of the lasting lessons of this book, because as much as I would like to believe that you or even myself would remember all of it, we will not. So what are the things that we can take away from this book? Having spent the last 10 months of Lord's days upon it, what are the things that we can treasure up in our hearts and our minds that we can store away as we wrap up this book? And I came up with five lasting lessons or five lasting truths of First Peter. But before we look at each one of those, take a look at this exhortation that we just read. Because I believe this frames our discussion this morning. There in verse 12, Peter says that he is exhorted, declared, The true grace of God. And then he goes on to say, stand firm in it. Stand firm. Do not be shaken. Do not be moved. And if you think about it, that is quite the exhortation considering the circumstances of those that he is writing to. Considering the suffering of those that were enduring it at the time there in Asia Minor as we have mentioned many times they were exiles from the land strangers living in a foreign place now experiencing hostility because of their faith you could understand why they would be shaken why their faith no doubt was beginning to waver wondering what is it that the lord was doing and is it really worth it is following christ worth the cost those feelings those thoughts are not unique to them are they sure their time their place their circumstances were all different than all of ours but the fears and doubts are not and were not the lord knows our frame he knows our weakness He knows our frailties. He knows that one of our chief frailties is to worry and to doubt. That this is the ongoing battle of the heart and of the mind. That a lack of courage plagues us all. We are, if we admit it, are not naturally courageous people. Those that are courageous in themselves the scripture says, are but fools. Those that are courageous in their circumstances do not control their circumstances, so they are at best naive. Those who are courageous in anything earthly are misguided and or deceived. But that doesn't mean that there is not reason to have courage in this life. No, there is. But that courage is to be found in the Lord, placing our faith and trust in him on a daily basis. And that is difficult because we are to have faith in that which we cannot see. We must walk by faith and not by sight. Peter, the author of this book, knew what that was like and what that meant. Remember when Jesus was amongst them, Peter had this experience unlike any of the other disciples When they were out in the boat in the middle of the night. And there are winds and waves and a, a great storm. And Jesus at that time was not with them. But Jesus comes out miraculously to them on the water. And they were terrified and cried out. And Jesus said to them, take courage. It is I. And Peter being the boldest among them. The most courageous said, Lord, if it is you, let me come to you on the water. And Jesus, interestingly enough, says, no, Peter, just stay there in the boat. No, he says, come. And so we read that Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But then we read this when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid and began to sink and he cried out lord save me and immediately jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said you have little faith why did you doubt we are called to do something that is not altogether different than peter in this situation if you're called to walk by faith and not by sight you're called to do that which is impossible Much like walking on the water. Because it's impossible to do on your own. In your own strength. In your own flesh. But you can if you are in the Lord. And you take courage in Him. That you're looking to Him. Knowing that the Lord is near. And that He is continually calling you to Himself. Telling us to come. The Lord never bids us to say, no, just stay there. No, He's always saying, come. Always continue to do that which is impossible on your own because it is Him through you that is strengthening you. It's Him through you that is encouraging you and giving you that strength. And yet, even though Peter started well, like so many of us can, it says that he began to sink. And why was it that he began to sink? Well, it was because he saw the wind and the waves. And he became afraid. And he began to doubt. And that is so true in our own life as well. When the waves and winds of this life are threatening. Quite literally, the storms of life are threatening or even striking. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to walk. By faith. To keep that courage in the Lord. To keep your trust in him. Because at times we feel overwhelmed. At times perhaps you even feel like you are like Peter and are beginning to drown. And we so easily can slip back to that which is natural to us. To not be courageous. To be fearful. To be anxious. To be afraid. To no longer walk by faith. In a sense, to become weak in the knees. and So Peter's last exhortation to us is a good one. One that we need to take to heart. And that is to stand firm. And the reason that we can stand firm is not because of us, but because of him. Because of God, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because in him we have good hope. I've said this before, but it bears worth repeating that Paul oftentimes is called the apostle of faith. John, the apostle of love and Peter, the apostle of hope. And Peter gives us a great hope in this book. In fact, in chapter one, he calls it a living hope. So briefly, then what are the ways that we can summarize this book what are the five lessons five reasons perhaps you might even want to see it as five briefs on why we are to stand firm in hope this morning and this day and you might want to write them down I think there's some room on your bulletin this day these are the five lasting lessons of first Peter and the first is this stand firm in the hope that your trials and suffering are not in vain. Stand firm in the hope and try, uh, that your ho- trials and sufferings are not in vain. Look with me if you have your Bibles open. Back to chapter 1 and verse 6. Peter is not ignorant of the reality of those that he is writing to. Rather, he acknowledges it. But notice what he says in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice the underlying thought there. That if you are suffering, if you are grieving, it is necessary. Notice that. If necessary, you be grieved by these various trials. And therefore, if you are experiencing it, then you can know... It is necessary for you. That it is not a opt-in, opt-out situation. You can't say as a Christian, I want to be a Christian, but Lord, please hold the problems. No, we don't get that. Every Christian will endure trials and tribulations. In fact, trials, according to this scripture, are necessary. Now, that's not a... Popular statement. It's one you probably do not want to hear. That is not one that I necessarily even want to preach, but it is the truth, is it not? It's a part of the Bible that is not hidden from us. The Bible does not hide the reality of suffering from believers. That God does not always steer us around the storm, but sometimes directly into it. And if He does so, you can have confidence that it is necessary. Notice this from various passages, Matthew sixteen thirty three, Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulation. The apostles say in Acts fourteen twenty two, through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Again, in this book, in first Peter four, verse twelve. Peter says, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. That it is not strange. That trials and tribulations are not the abnormal Christian life. They are the normal Christian life. Trials are necessary. They're purposeful. Because God is a purposeful God. Everything he does or allows has a purpose. We may not know the full extent of the purpose. In fact, oftentimes we don't. But there are times that we get little glimmers. We see some of the purpose for why it is. But the full extent we may not know until glory. Here in First Peter 1, Peter goes on to give at least a glimpse of the reason why you'll experience the trials or sufferings or why you are currently experiencing such. He says in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice it is for the testing. The testing of the genuineness of your faith. It's so that our other trusts, Trusts that are not in God, trusts that are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusts in ourselves or in this world or in the circumstances of life would be stripped away until we are made hopeless, until our hope is fully and finally found in the Lord alone, knowing that we have no hope except in Christ. It takes the crucible of trials to get us to such. It is difficult, it is painful. We squirm under it, we cry out to God, how long, and that is the normal Christian experience, and we should pray such. But oh, that which it tests is made precious. It's made precious in the sight of God. Peter says, more precious than gold. God never wastes any joys, nor does he waste any struggles. He has used them and will use them in your life. And he alone determines what is necessary. And so the question is, can we trust him in this, knowing no matter what circumstances you will go through? If so, we can have hope and we can stand firm. Stand firm then that the various trials and tribulations are for a reason and for a purpose. Second, Stand firm in the hope that is yet to come. These first two are very closely related to each other, closely connected, because Peter links the two oftentimes in this book. He keeps putting forward of the hope that is yet to be revealed In fact, you can see this here in chapter 1 if you're still there. In fact, he mentions it this time before he talks about the various trials and tribulations. He begins in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven For you. Again, if you go on to chapter 4 and verse 13, we read this But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then, even again in chapter 5, verse 10, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Notice how Peter links together the sufferings of the present with the glory that is yet to be revealed. And saying that there is something that is yet to come. There is an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. And that inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. Now everything in this place, everything that you are experiencing, is temporal. Even these sufferings are but a little while. But that which is yet to come is eternal and everlasting. It is an everlasting and eternal glory. So wonderful it cannot even be described. In fact... Peter and the apostles can only describe it by what it is not because words are not sufficient to describe it. One commentator puts it this way, our inheritance is imperishable. It cannot die, be lost, be stolen, be rotten or ruined. It is undefiled, it is pure and pristine. It is not soiled, used, marred or corrupted in any way. It will not fade away. It will never diminish in vitality vitality, value, or satisfying virtue, the delight and wonder it will inspire in us will never cease. In other words, it is that which will only get better and better for all of eternity. Its dividends will only be greater and greater for all of eternity. There is no limit to the greatness of God In his glory. And therefore we will be continually amazed. For all of eternity. Of all the things that God is revealing. Of himself. And as a result it will. Lead us into a greater. And more fuller expression. Of praise to him. Which we will be able to do. With glorified bodies. Without the limitations that we have. So often in this life. The best. Earthly inheritance. The best earthly joys have no such properties, do they? And yet, how much do we labor for those? Peter is saying, we should have our mind set on these other things, these greater things, these glorious things that are yet to come. Paul puts it this way. When talking about that which is yet to come, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what well, God has prepared those who love him. And therefore we cannot think of glory enough. We cannot think of heaven or the new heavens and the new earth that awaits. And this epistle is setting our minds continually upon it more and more. And as a result, I think we can stand firm In the present afflictions. The present sufferings. Knowing that there will be an end to it. And a greater revelation yet to be revealed. A more joyous one. And so the Lord has not forgotten us. He will return. And redeem his own. He will complete that which he has already begun. And bring it to perfection. And so therefore stand firm in the hope. Of that which is yet To be revealed. But until that day we see then third. Stand firm in the hope. That God rewards faithful obedience. Faithful obedience and submission. Stand firm in the hope that God rewards faithful obedience. And submission. This is a book about submission. Being subject. And Peter makes it very clear that we're to be subject For the Lord's sake. To every human institution. He says that in chapter 2 verse 13. Though Jesus is our king. And though we are citizens of heaven. Of that which is yet to be revealed. We are also citizens of this place. And therefore we are to be submitted to the authorities. To every institution that God has put above us. And again Peter makes this very clear. In verse 13. Be subject to the emperor. Or the king. Or the governor verse 18 servants be subject to your masters perhaps we would contextualize that and say workers be subject to your bosses chapter 3 verse 1 wives be subject to your own husbands chapter 5 verse 5 be subject to the elders within the church and so you see that there is subjection that is needed in the civil and the vocational and the marital and the religious realms, that we have Christian duties in each and every one of these, in each and every one of these spheres that is created by God, and God has given them authority and has given that authority in the hands of particular men and women. And that these aren't faceless entities. No, these are the mayor, the mayor of Smyrna, the governor, the governor of Georgia, the president president of the United States, your boss, the CEO, your husband, your parents, those that are children, the elders and deacons of this church, no matter the sphere, the realm, we're to respect and honor those put in authority. Not just as this book tells us. Not just when they are fair. Not just when they Make decisions that you are already in agreement with. But oftentimes. When they are unfair. And even times when they are unjust. That we are to give respect and authority and submission. Even in those times. Why? Because that is part and parcel to our witness. This is the one of the ways that we demonstrate that we are Christians. By our submission. Yes, even by our obedience. Notice what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you've been called, excuse me, eh, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Again, chapter three, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, he says, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy. One commentator says that we are to have show and tell evangelism. Remember back when you were in kindergarten and you had show and tell. This commentator says that we should always have a show-and-tell aspect to life. That we show our Christian witness by the way we conduct ourselves. This book would say by our obedience, by our submission. And also use our lips to tell the reason why. That we have the hope that is within us. And this is such a powerful witness. Why? Because it puts forth the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter again says, demonstrates this in this book. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Notice what Peter is saying. If there was ever a man that could have complained. Perhaps should have complained. Jesus would have had reason to. But he said he didn't entrust himself to any man. But rather entrusted himself to God. And therefore entrusting himself to God. In his present circumstance. He committed no sin. Nor was deceit or reviling found in his mouth. Though he suffered. He did not threaten. So through this, we show that we are Christians by our witness to him, that God faithfully rewards obedience and submission to him. So stand firm in that and in that truth. Fourth, stand firm in the hope that God's special blessing and favor is upon his church, that God's special blessing and favor is upon his church. In a day where there is rugged individualism, An organized religion, as it is called, is being despaired and diminished. We see, once again, from this epistle that God's eyes of blessing and his favor is upon the church. What is foreign to Peter's thinking, indeed, the entirety of the New Testament is that you can be a Christian apart from the church. Is there exceptions? I'm sure there are. Are you the exception to that rule? Most likely not. And why would you? Why would you desire to be? Indeed, if you are a Christian, you cannot. Because when you understand the blessings that are received, are not received ultimately, individually, but corporately, that we are individually blessed through the corporate gathering of God's people on a weekly basis. You've heard me say this before, but... This year we lost a church member who was, in all intents and purposes, deaf and blind. He was 80 years old. He could not see, he could not hear. It was difficult for him to participate in worship. In other words, he had every built-in reason not to come. Because who would blame him, right? Right? And yet you would find him every Lord's day. Unless providentially hindered. Sitting right over here. Why? Because he demonstrated probably perhaps. In greater ways than we even know. And even greater ways than we even understand. That there is a special blessing. In the gathering together of God's. Corporate people. A gathering of his church. That where two or three are gathered. He is present there that he could say with King David and I hope this is what you say as well is good for me when they said to me let us go to the house of the Lord and that's what makes us glad King David was a man after God's own heart and hopefully we are people after God's own heart people that desire to be made glad in his presence in the corporate gathering of God's people that we'd have our hearts and our minds set on things above because it is here corporately that we can say with Peter from this epistle that we are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ what Peter is saying is that what takes place on a Lord's Day basis is as great as the temple in the Old Testament. Because God is building his bricks, his people, his church. And there is the place that he inhabits. That is the place that he dwells. And that is precious and glorious to him. And if we're to have a heart after our God, that is precious and glorious to us as well. And it's here that we can rejoice in the realities that are ours because of Christ. Because of what he has done. Because he gives us His special presence. Peter again goes on to say. We are the chosen race. We are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who called you out of darkness. Into his wonderful lights. For we were once not the people. But now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy. And now we have received mercy mercy. That God has not forgotten his church. And that he lavishes his love and his grace here. He continues to pour out his blessings and he continues to use you to extend his kingdom around the world. So let us not lose hope of this calling and charge. Rather, stand firm in it. Fifth and finally, stand firm in the hope of knowing Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the hope of knowing Jesus Christ. Peter lived life for three years beside the Lord Jesus. He got to witness. He got to see everything that Jesus did for the entirety of those three years. He got to hear his preaching and teaching, see his miracles, see his death, his resurrection and his ascension. He had this extraordinary privilege that few were given in fact, even out of all the disciples, we could say that Peter probably experienced more than anyone else in this life. And yet, notice what Peter never says. Peter never says, I wish you knew him like I knew him. I wish you got to experience him like I got to experience him. Peter never says that. Rather, he says, you do know him. In fact, he says and. Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. That is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says you have a true faith. You have a true faith You have a true belief. You have a true love. You truly know Christ and you have salvation in him. You have seen him, even though your eyes, your physical eyes have not. We have all seen the Lord Jesus Christ because of his truth, because of his word being open to us, because of his presence with us. Indeed, this is the purpose of Peter's writing, that we would know Christ. And that is indeed the purpose of all of scripture, that we would encounter the living Christ. That is step one in our purpose as a church to know Christ and to worship him. And that is not something that we ever move on from. We never graduate from that and say, all right, now I know him so I can move on to these other steps. No, we're always coming back to know him more and more. Because as we increase in knowledge, as we increase in knowing, we increase in love and fervor for him as we walk by faith and not by sight. So, brothers, beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter exhorts us to stand firm. Do not lose heart. Do not be shaken, but stand firm and have courage. Why? Because we have hope, a sure and living hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we bid adieu to this wonderful truth of God, we can praise him. That he's not hidden these things from us, but he has revealed them, he has made them known to us, and that he has given us ears to hear by his Spirit. In so doing, let us not leave behind these truths. But let us store them up. For we have been briefed by the Apostle Peter, by the Holy Spirit. We have a briefing of the Lord Jesus Christ on what he calls us to in the Christian life. and So let us store these things in our hearts and our minds and let us walk worthy according to his cause, all for his glory and for his praise. So help us, God. Amen. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do ask for your help. Even now as we come to the end, to the conclusion of this epistle, this truth truly is overwhelming to us as Almost too much for our hearts and our minds even to bear. Lord, even as we have listed these five things, there could have been five or ten or fifty others that we could have listed in this amazing epistle of your truth. Lord, may we set our minds upon these. Those things that would give us comfort, we'd find that comfort of the spirit. Those things that give us pause and give us conviction, Lord, that you bring us in conformity to your truth once again. Lord, in all of these things, may you show us the way so that we may be honoring, pleasing to you. Lord, until you bring us home, until we would see you face to face. Lord, may we stand firm and walk by faith and not by sight. We pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.